Hi, I'm Hannah Sutton. And I'm Denise Balkasun. Welcome to this episode of Color Code, a podcast about race by the Globe and Mail. Today we've got a guest with us. Cheryl Sutherland is a video producer here. Hello. Hi, Cheryl. You're also my desk buddy. Yes, we are buddies. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when I mentioned that Denise and I are doing a podcast, you heartily volunteered to do this particular topic. Yes. So this episode is about mixed race families. Interracial families. Interracial. Interracial I hate that word. <laughs> why do you hate that word? You know, I can't even put my finger on why I hate it. It just it sounds bad to my ear. And I guess it's very clinical, you know, to say, oh, interracial, because I am a product of a interracial relationship. <laughs> my my mom's white, my dad's black, but I actually didn't grow up in a mixed race household. My mom and my dad divorced when I was quite young, and then I grew up with my mom and my stepdad who was white, and with my two younger siblings who are also white, and I was interested in what it would be like if I was actually raised in a mixed household. So, I found this lovely couple, Paul and Victoria Martin. Hi, Paul. It's Cheryl. Hi. And Victoria's there, too? Yeah. Great. Um, they live in Markham, which is a suburb north of Toronto, and it's predominantly a Chinese neighborhood. I'm CBC, a Canadian-born Chinese. And my background is from St. Kitts and Nevis. That's where my parents are from. But I don't even say black Canadian. I say black. A black man, I guess. That's what I consider myself. And in their house, they have three mixed-race kids with another one on the way. Two of the oldest are actually from Victoria's previous relationship. And so I went to Markham and met them in person. Hello. Hi! <laughs> Hi, nice How to see you. you. I was totally in the wrong door. <laughs> There's a lot of things I think we've kind of made into a fusion of like my culture, your culture kind of thing. And Sharing food. <laughs> oh, okay, that that's one. amazing for me. That I'm is one that we're struggling it. with. Any person we know that doesn't like to share food is always black for some reason. <laughs> From high school on, I was always attracted to black guys. But the funny thing was, even though Paul's black, he didn't fit my type. He was like the goody two shoes who went to church all his life, and I was more of like she's more I, like I was, she's I was more like the, like the bad boys. <laughs> the Nelly. She's more like the Nelly type of guys, or like uh, yeah. exhibit. <laughs> we uh, we both go to the same church. So we met in church. I was like, oh, she's she's cute, you know. But I thought she was married because I saw she had uh, two little girls. I wasn't interested in getting into a relationship. So any guy that I spoke to at church, I was always like, do you know Tyrone? That's the girl's father. And he was going to the church at the time. So I was like, oh yeah, do you know Tyrone? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know. I don't I don't know him. So who's Tyrone? Well, to understand Victoria and Paul's relationship, we need to know about Tyrone, who's Victoria's ex and also happens to be black. Victoria and Tyrone have two kids together. And when they first became pregnant, Breaking the news to Victoria's parents wasn't easy. I remember them sitting down uh, with us after we told them we were pregnant, and my dad was like, so what is your plan for your life? And he was kind of just like, I don't know. <laughs> you know? So it, was like, it wasn't the best situation, and they never liked him from the beginning. So Kind of giving a bad impression of, all, of black yeah. guys in general. <laughs> yeah, and that was the That's first boyfriend. That's how I felt going in there. That was the yeah. first boyfriend I ever introduced them I felt, to. I felt so. I had a lot to... Yeah. I, I felt it wasn't just for me, for like the whole of like black whole black, black race. race. <laughs> I have to make sure that I don't give off that impression. Yeah, and I think yeah. you've done a pretty good job. With I think I, I think I have too. Yeah, they're very impressed with you. 
The most nerve-wracking thing for me at the beginning was like, hopefully your parents like me and everything, you know, and even our other family members. I was asking, are there any uh, maybe racists who don't want black people to be around? My grandmother was, but she yeah, passed away she when passed we were dating. Away. What would happen with your grandmother? Well, the first thing was my cousin started dating a black girl, and that was the first black person that was introduced to our family. But my grandmother was not happy about that relationship when, when he had brought her and introduced her. So I already knew from then that uh, she was racist. <laughs> she didn't like black people. Um, so then I got pregnant with my oldest daughter, Ayanna, and I was living with their dad at the time, but we didn't have a healthy relationship. So it was always very volatile. And my cousins were staying at my grandmother's house. And so I went over there to stay for a few nights and ended up having a conversation with my grandmother telling her that I was pregnant. Um, and she only spoke Chinese. So it was me kind of just trying my hardest to convey that message. There was a magazine with pictures of different babies, all different races, and she kind of pointed and she's like, which one, you know? So <laughs> at that point, I pointed to the black baby and um, I was like, yeah, it's going to be half black. And she seemed like she was fine in the conversation. But then the next day, she was just freaking out, like ranting and raving in Chinese. And I was like, what's going on? And then I get a phone call from my mom saying that, you know, my grandmother didn't want me in the house because she found out I was pregnant and it was with uh, a black guy. So it didn't go over very well with her. That's so hard. Well, it's such a sad story about Victoria's grandmother because it shows that racism isn't just out there in the big bad world. It's in your family and it's with people that you love. Especially if Victoria was feeling not 100% certain about her relationship or being pregnant and then to have this added layer of someone she probably loves just outright rejecting her, like that's, that's really tough. I also want to reiterate, you know, even though there's this, this explosive grandmother story that Victoria's parents were very accepting of Paul. But that being said, another layer is that Paul and Victoria live in Markham. And just to give you a picture of Markham, it is a predominantly visible minority community. At least three quarters of people identify as a visible minority, with almost 40% of people actually identifying as Chinese. Right. So even if Victoria's family is welcoming of Paul, he is still a minority within a minority in his everyday life. Exactly. That's one thing I'm always aware of, just like, I'm definitely the minority over here. And like, uh, she'd even say to family, like, you know, Asians, if they see even white people, it's like more of people who are maybe are smarter, or they, they're wise. Yeah, it's or, more, they're or more accepting of More whites. accepting of, of whites. Right. Like, I think you were saying it too, where it seems like if one of their kids maybe date outside their race and it's a white guy, it's almost like, yes, yeah, strong approval, you've made it. <laughs> but then if it's like a black <laughs> guy, it's like, you yeah, mean in the Western world, right? It's like, maybe a black guy, like, oh man, what's wrong with you? You're going downhill, you need to go up and- <laughs> <laughs> you're going to grow up in poverty and like, I don't know, that's, that's the, the feeling I get, right? No, I so, agree, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> not, not that they would ever say that, but yeah. No, but I mean, that's, that's, that's the, how I feel as a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. So I've noticed certain looks from the outside world, especially going to those Chinese restaurants. <laughs> yeah, like there's know? this plaza across the street. And there's a street, you know, you get, you get certain looks and then you see them kind of talking to each other and then you see the other spouse look when they're talking to each other, you know? So How, do you, how do you feel about that? Well, I feel like they're, they're judging me, right? Like, she, did, she could do better, in a sense. The younger Asians, I don't, they don't even notice it or you don't really pay attention as much or whatever because they're growing up in that whole culture. But, like, the older Asian generation, it just makes you feel like, man, it's like they're judging me without even knowing me, you know what I mean? It's, it's like they're disapproving. Of it's, like, it's almost like a disapproving type of look where, man, she could have done better. Like, what's wrong with her? And, 
you know, and the kids. But what do you feel about that? I mean, it's sad. You never told me that. <laughs> I mean, I don't, it's a guy thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when we open up too much. Yeah, but there's nothing really you can do about it, right? It's just like, that's how it is, I guess. That sounds like a pretty intense moment, Cheryl. It was a very intense moment to be a part of, with their realizing something that they had never realized before. And even though they laugh about it, you can tell that it was a really important moment for both of them. I think the laughter is discomfort. You know, I don't think it's a laughter of humor. I think it's a way of sort of making a hard moment easier for them to bear. But they're very open to talking about this with you and with each other. They are very open because a lot of these things are difficult to admit even to yourself. And then to also admit it to your partner, even though that person is, you know, your partner in life and your closest confidant still, it's hard to say. And then, you know, I wonder what will they tell their children? Their children are biracial and and their kids are still quite young. I mean, that brings us right into this moment where, yes, they have these things to deal with as a relationship together, but they also have to deal with this with their children and how do they raise their children in a world that will look at them differently. When Ayanna was younger, actually, uh, before we knew Paul, she went to a home daycare and there were like basically all white people there. And they would always play princesses and dress up as princesses. So I remember um, around that time, she would always come home and look at herself in the mirror and say, why do I have to look like this? Why can't I look like them? I want to have white skin. I want to have long, straight hair. My nose is too wide. My lips are too fat. Um, And she really didn't like herself. And... um, That really broke my heart. I actually kept her out of going into JK because of that, because I knew the school that she would go to is all Asians, and she equated Asian to being white, so she would call me white. She's like, everyone in my family is white except for daddy, and I'm the only brown one. And and so it was at that point, like, I I made a conscious effort to, like, surround her with a bunch of people who look like her, because at our church there were a lot of mixed women, um, powerful mixed women, like... I I got her hanging around with them more and really just pointing out like, look at her hair, it looks so nice. And, you know, and then she kind of went on this journey and she eventually embraced her her blackness. And she's like, I love my hair now. I like my brown skin. It makes me different. And um, so I don't know if you know the song, I Love My Hair, the the Sesame Street one. My hair looks good in a cornwall. It does so many things, you know. That's why I let it grow. I love my hair. I love my hair. We got her to record that song as kind of like a celebration of, okay, now she's happy with who she is as a mixed race person. I love my hair. Want to make the world aware. I love my hair. You have two different cultures. You have Chinese culture and Guyanese culture. What's that like? It's pretty cool, actually. It's cool because we have two different um, two different cultures, which means we have two different sides. Mm-hmm. So it's like doubling the coolness. <laughs> For me, I mean, it doesn't matter what other people think. So like hearing how you felt about people looking at you and stuff, like, I don't like that, you know? <laughs> But uh, for me, it's like we love each other and we know that this is something that God, God, God brought us together. We know that for sure. And um, I wouldn't have it any other way. So it's like whatever anyone else might say or think, it doesn't really have any effect on me because I know what we have is strong. Mm-hmm.
long as I know my family's happy, like, I can't wait to come back home and spend time with the kids. And like, you know, we have we have a healthy, good marriage, a, a healthy relationship with the kids. I mean, that for me is life. Like, that's when you know if you have a good life, even more than money and all that kind of stuff. All of my head, all of my head. I love it and I have to say. Love my head, I love my head. Want to make the world aware. I love my head. I wear it up, I wear it down. I wear it twisted all around. I wear braces and pigtails too. I love all the things my hair can do. Embrace for flying free. They're their perfect tresses, you see. My hair is part of me. An awesome part of me. I love me. my hair. <laughs> <laughs> How can you not love that that song and how Victoria empowered her daughter? Mm-hmm. Music, it's amazing. <laughs> well, it's so great because, you know, she didn't really understand Paul's experience, but she put herself in her child's place and was like, no, this problem has to be fixed. And she found a way to fix it. Yeah, and you know, how can that not break your heart when your daughter comes up to you and is like saying that, I don't like my nose, I don't like my hair, I don't like anything, right? It's very hard. And I can completely relate to what Ayanna was going through. I remember growing up feeling the same thing, you know? Why is my hair curly? Why is my lips so big? Why is my nose so flat? And it's, it, you feel very isolated as a child because, you know, you just want to be like everybody else. Did you ever express those thoughts to your own mom? I don't know, actually. I don't think we ever had a conversation like that. Actually, I don't think we ever did. Um, like, did you, do you think you ever even said those things out loud? I don't think so. You, you had those thoughts too, but you never, you never expressed them. You know, that speaks volumes to Victoria's parenting, I feel, like that her daughters can feel open enough. Because, you know, if you really think back to when you're very small and how much you want your parents' approval, no wonder racialized kids do feel a lot of shame because you don't want to share that stuff with your parents. Like our race comes from our parents, and so you don't want to tell them dissatisfied with like a racial element of yourself. This racism works. It's supposed to make people feel ashamed, and it does. It makes you feel ashamed. For what reason? It's like, I'm ashamed of being myself. Thanks, guys. That was fun. That's it? That's it? That's it. Yeah. Are you staying for this? That's for sure. <laughs> So thank you so much, Cheryl, for bringing us this interview with the Martin family. They were really wonderful. They were so open and also super cute. <laughs> yeah, they were They were great. Um, and Cheryl, I'm wondering, you know, what was your main takeaway after spending the day with Paul and Victoria and their kids? Well, the main takeaway was what an incredible family they were and how loving they were. And I also just personally felt like it was kind of the first time in my life I didn't feel like the other. And... I guess it's because, you know, like I said before, I've always grown up being the other and being inside of this family, even for a couple of hours, it was like being a part of something that I had never experienced before. Because they weren't just one race. Exactly. And so did you have any thoughts on how difficult it might be or whether there is actually like an ease to it when you're parenting, you know, a multiracial family? I think what I learned was that 
you learn as you go along because these children are going to experience something that you can't relate to. And it's just something that you have to take day by day. And I think I'll take that with me when I start raising my kids. Mm-hmm. If I have kids. <laughs> So for some context, we've got Zosha Bielski in the studio with us. Hi, Zosha. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here. You are the Globe's sex and relationships reporter. And so, you know, we just heard uh, Cheryl Sutherland's story on the Martin family in Markham, Ontario. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how many of us Canadians are in mixed race relationships? So, you know, we know that statistically speaking, interracial relationships are on the rise in Canada. Uh, 5% of all unions in Canada were between people of different ethnic origins, religions, languages, and birthplaces in 2011. And that's more than double than what we had in this country in 1991. Now, that number still sort of feels low to me. That's because you live in Toronto. That's because I live in this (laughs) multiracial hub of Toronto. And actually... We have sort of 8% of our couples are mixed race here, and we're topped only by Vancouver with 10%. Despite these low numbers, Canadians are very proud of their multiculturalism. But, you know, the experts I've spoken with, the scholars in this field, um, caution that just because this stuff is slowly on the rise doesn't necessarily mean we're, we're past racism. And one of the scholars I spoke with talked about something called repressive tolerance. You'll tolerate these people, but it it's one step shy of acceptance. That sounds awful, actually, repressive tolerance. <laughs> it's like, you're okay as long as you don't get too far into my space. Like, yeah. You're okay, but don't touch me on the subway. <laughs> it's not welcoming, no. <laughs> hmm. Although marrying someone means that you do accept them. But I have known, especially older couples, I have a friend whose mom is Vietnamese and her dad is white. And it's weird because obviously he loves her, but he still can sometimes be like racist you know he can still sort of show these ideas that whiteness is better than vietnamese-ness yeah you're right i don't don't think you necessarily shed all of these things just because you happen to marry somebody you know i i'm involved in a mixed race relationship that sounds so clinical (laughs) my husband is white in normal people language um, but, the, the, you know, I sometimes I just think about it as like my own personal experience. Like sometimes it feels like it's just an isolated experience. What have you found in your in your research? So I called uh, Manel Matani, and she's an associate professor in human geography and journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough. You know, when you're white and you're dating someone who is not white, what do you learn about race and, and the daily experiences of, of race? I think you just get a day-to-day insight into what their lives are really like. I mean, it gives you a completely different view. That's the beauty of partnering up with somebody who is of a completely different background than you. It's not just you're getting the nine-to-five like you get with somebody who is in your workplace. You get to see their entire holistic approach and their experience of race. On the flip side, you know, what, what corrosion can happen in interracial relationships when um, these couples face racism, either from the public uh, or within their own families? I think um, it can be very, very difficult for a person of color to try to explain to someone who is white the kind of challenges and racism they face on a daily basis. And often they don't understand the difference between individual racism and structural racism. Trying to explain that difference can be very, very difficult and, and basically evoke all sorts of trauma for these individuals. So really, I want to encourage white partners to do some reading, do some investigating on their own, and think about what it means to be an ally. 
So I have a story. My partner is also white. And I just remember once like going through the Netflix queue with Steve, my husband, and and he's like, I just find it so impossible to pick a movie with you because you're going to say that every movie has too many guns or is too full of white people. And like, <laughs> it's just impossible, you know? And we sort of had this like issue for a long time. And it took me a while to explain it to him. And I don't really remember when we had some sort of breakthrough, but there was a point where I was like, you know, if you think it's hard to pick a movie with me, just like try and think a little bit about what it's like to be me and to see every single movie not be about me and every single magazine not be about me and every single TV show. And, you know, and I work in media and so I see all these images all day and none of them are about me. It's just when I'm at home, I just want a space that's like a little bit more my space, more comforting, more friendly to me. Um, and he definitely does get it now, you know. Um, like, so what are you guys watching now? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, right now we're watching Orange is the New Black, which is like, you know, real and also very depressing sometimes. But like the 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 women's lives and the lives of people of color that show, it's just they're more real to me, you know. But so when he wants to watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, he'll just wait till an evening when I am not there and then he'll watch it himself because I just have I have no interest and I guess it must be frustrating for you to have to constantly explain yourself uh, and, and drive it home over and over again. That, that, that maybe, yeah, maybe it I gets mean, frustrating, right? I think it's like little tiny things like this that don't seem important. But for someone who isn't white, it's like, yeah, I'm just tired of looking at white people today. Well, I think it's also just a constant reminder that the other person doesn't move through life the same way. And that can be kind of isolating did Matani have any ideas about, you know, what parents, how they should interact with their kids, what they should tell them about being in a mixed race family? I did ask Matani about the sort of different experiences that mixed race Canadians had with their own parents, parents who obviously had their own interracial dating experiences. And then there were some surprising findings there as well in terms of how this plays out across the dinner table. The biggest issue that came up for them was the fact that often the parents weren't honest about talking through some of the racism that they faced as an interracial couple. And a lot of that is just simple cocooning. The parents wanted to protect their children from hearing about those racist acts. But the cocooning has some very um, destructive impacts on these children who are being raised. Cocooning your kids, shielding them from racism. Um, what did Professor Matani say about the specific effects well, basically what she found was that it was creating a rift between mixed-race kids and their parents. So while both the parents and the kids had gone through similar things, nobody was talking about it. Um, so these kids would get racially bullied at school but felt they couldn't bring it up at home. The good news is that uh, these mixed-race Canadians are now very upfront with their own children. Uh, they're not repeating the, the, the habits of their parents and... and and they're, they're telling, they're pretty open with their kids about what they've been through. Um, and they're making room for that dialogue. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. thank you for coming. Down the hall. <laughs> <laughs> so, Denise, any takeaways that you learned from today's episode that you will apply in your home? <laughs> uh, that's an interesting question. I really aim to be very open with my son. I don't know how that's going to go. He's only two. Um, have we had to talk about, you know, we haven't had to talk about anything hard about race yet, thankfully. 
So I guess openness, but I hoped that that was my goal mm-hmm. ahead of time. How about you? Mm-hmm. Well, um, because I definitely recognized the cocooning instinct in me, um, you know, I, I think that I'll always kind of try and be cognizant of that and not protect or shield my kids. I also, I really want to make sure that I impress upon them that we are people who enjoy certain privileges because, yeah, some of us in our family are racialized, but we're all like fairly light skinned. We don't have like, say, the hair issue that the little girls in the Martin family had to deal with. And and generally speaking, you know, um, we kind of fit into our community. So I think it's my duty to point out the privileges that we enjoy. And I feel like to a small extent, I do that, not in a racial way, but for example, my kid just turned five and I and I said to him, we don't need to have lots of gifts. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we have so much stuff already. And I, I try and give the like white privilege light kind of conversation like to prime him for one day when we do talk about race. I mean, it's interesting because my parents never talked to us about racism when we were little. And my takeaway from that was just that racism is a thing that you just deal with. You just live with it. It's not a thing that can change. But, you know, now hearing her talk about cocooning, I'm like, maybe my parents were trying to protect me. And so that was a real disconnect in terms of the messaging, right? Mm -hmm. They were trying to protect you, but inadvertently, it was a very different message that you received. Right. Yeah. I also think that dealing with race head on in whatever way you choose to do can have really cool unintended consequences. Like I wanted my kids to understand their Koreanness, So I made this little neighborhood club and we do these weekly Korean lessons. But really this this group, it's actually such a diverse group. Mm-hmm. Like several kids who come are in no way ethnically Korean. And so my kids hopefully will kind of get this message that, you know, race is not just skin color. Who you are is not just your skin color. I mean, there's just so much more complexity and depth. And that is, I almost don't want to say it because it sounds too pat, but that is very Canadian. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by us, Hannah Song and Denise Balkasun, as well as reporters Cheryl Sutherland and Zosha Bielski. Technical producer is Timothy Moore, and senior producer is Kevin Sue. During the process of making this episode, I learned about how great Sesame Street is in terms of creating stories of inclusivity. Big thanks to them for usage of their song, I Love My Hair. Sesame Street excerpts provided courtesy of Sesame Workshop, New York, New York. If you enjoyed this episode of Color Code, subscribe, rate and review it on iTunes, share it with a friend, and tell us what you think. Just take your phone and record a voice memo to tell us your own stories of being in a mixed-race family, and then email it to us at colorcode at globeandmail.com. Special thanks to the Martin family, who are expecting their fourth child any day now. Thanks also to Professor Manel Matani. You can look up her book, Mixed Race Amnesia, Resisting the Romanticization of Multiraciality. Our theme music is by Bonjay. You can find them at bonjay.net. And keep the conversation going. You can look us up on Twitter. I'm at Hannah Sung. And I'm at Balkasun. Thanks so much for listening to Color Code.